As I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 7 this morning, we're going to, Lord willing, finish out this section on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew seven twenty four through 29, I've entitled the message, Parable of Two Builders. And let's ask the Lord to bless our study time together. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to open the Word of God and to have you speak to our hearts. Pray that you would give me grace to teach accurately and clearly, make the appropriate applications uh, to our lives. So, uh, Lord, we uh, commit our study to you now, ask your blessing upon it, pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we note uh, as we get started here, no, oh, okay, thanks. Uh, Christ the King is the theme of the book, and we are in this section here, chapters 5 through 7, the pronouncements of the king proving his judicial right to the throne. Well, the whole of the Old Testament looks forward to the coming of the Messianic King. I mean, that's what the Old Testament was, a time of preparation. Looks forward to this coming Messianic King who would come as a deliverer and at the same time to reign over his people. Well, Matthew sets out to show us that Jesus Christ is this prophesied, promised coming Messiah. And he presents several lines of evidence, beginning with his legal right to the throne, as seen in his genealogical credentials. Then he shows us his moral right to the throne, in that he overcame everything Satan had to throw at him in a special time of temptation. And then in Matthew 5-7, through we see Christ's judicial right to the throne, as seen in his unparalleled, profound teaching. Well, Jesus began his ministry with a call to repentance, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, in Matthew 4, 17. The way into the kingdom is through repentance. Well, that was followed up, you understand, beginning of his ministry, repent. I'm presenting the kingdom, repent. And the way into the kingdom is through repentance. Well, that's followed up with Matthew 5 through 7, showing what true repentance looks like in the lives of the true followers of Christ. This is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which some have called the greatest sermon ever given. In fact, when I get done here, I'm probably going to do a series of posts uh, covering this greatest sermon ever given. Should uh, have some attention here. So anyway... In this sermon, Christ contrasts the outward, ritualistic, legalistic, hypocritical righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees with that which he called for, which is righteous living born out of true repentance. Christ emphasized right living that flows from a changed heart. This is characteristic of those who will inherit the kingdom. John Phillips says, some evade the application of the sermon. Some, some kind of look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, that's not really for us today. And that's what he's saying. Some, some uh, uh, evade the application of the sermon, saying, this teaching is Jewish and not for the church. Or, this counsel of perfection is impractical. Or, this is the rule of conduct for Christ's future kingdom. But I would agree with Warren Wearsby, who says, We cannot lightly dismiss this sermon, for it is God who gave it to us. We must either bow before him and submit to his authority, or we will be condemned. And I agree with what Wearsby is saying there. Now, we must keep in mind that the key interpretive verse for this entire Sermon on the Mount 
is found in Matthew 5.20, which certainly has application, I believe, for us today. Here in Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, I say to you that unless your righteousness, and he's talking about right living, as he goes on to detail, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, which we will be studying this morning, Jesus is illustrating the results of applying his teaching versus those who refuse to do so. The discourse shows that the obedience of saving faith looks like this, or certainly should. And hence the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. In view as a hearing response, saving faith, that results in obeying versus a hearing response that refuses to obey and thus will not stand. Christ is emphasizing the reality of a faith that works. He describes the nature of a saving faith when he says in chapter 5, verse 3, for example, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, a true saving faith it involves a, a humble response, poor in spirit. I, I recognize I'm bankrupt before God. You can't get in through pride. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In 580, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who's going to see God? Well, the pure in heart. I don't know about you, but my heart's not always that pure. Right? Who's going to see God? Blessed are the pure in heart. What's he saying? He's saying that a saving faith is an honest to God response. It's pure in that sense. In contrast to the religious deception and hypocrisy of the Pharisees. All the way through here, really what we have is the contrast between the righteousness that Christ is presenting versus that of the Pharisees and the scribes. So uh, just by way of uh, introduction to our message this morning, just to be very clear what we're talking about, uh, the wrong view is faith plus works equals salvation. By the way, this is the the great evangel. We we believe in a gospel of of grace. Uh, We're not saved by what we do. Now, Jesus is going to put a tremendous emphasis on works here in our study this morning. Uh, I think uh, evangelicals, some of us, have gone so far uh, the other way where you say, well, works don't have any part then as far as, and it's true as far as our salvation. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by Jesus Christ's work on the cross. Faith plus works equals salvation is the wrong view. It's, It's heresy. It's wrong doctrine. The correct view is this. We're saved by faith. Faith equals salvation. But also works flows out of that. If you've got a saving faith, yes, you're saved, but then works follow behind. Works are the evidence or the fruit of true faith, but works are not a meritorious basis for our salvation. They are simply the outflow of a living faith. As James says, faith without works is dead. Now, while salvation is by faith alone, it must be the right kind of faith. And we see this in the New Testament scriptures. There's a, there's a wrong kind of faith and there's a right kind of faith. There's a bogus kind of faith and there's a saving faith. The right kind of faith uh, exhibits itself in a changed life. 
Not perfectly. Uh, None of us uh, live out the new life perfectly. But we are new creations in Christ. And God is at work in our lives. A right kind of faith is a repentant faith. A life-changing faith, a faith that works. And this is Christ's main point here at the end of the sermon. He's taught this, and now he's making application. And what's his main point? His main point is, it will show in your life. All the way through, Christ is emphasizing an internal faith that recognizes, are you ready for this? His authority. That is his lordship, which in turn alters the life. That's what this sermon is about. It's about his lordship authority and living accordingly. Well, Christ all the way through instructs us how to live, and he speaks with the authority of God. A true repentant faith recognizes him as Lord God and lives accordingly. This is a kind of righteousness that will enter the kingdom. That is his point in saying it's not enough to merely say, Lord, Lord, as we looked at last week, but only those who actually know him as Lord, as demonstrated in doing the will of the Father, will enter the kingdom. Now this mirrors what Christ is now saying at the end of chapter 7, when he says that whoever hears his sayings and does them is, is likened to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Well, the sermon formally ends at Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, which is then followed up by four challenges or warnings, uh, which call for a commitment of allegiance to Jesus Christ. Christ shows what is to be characteristic of his people, and then in effect calls for people to align with his teaching, which begins with repentant faith. Christ brings all those listening, in effect, to the point of decision. Uh, What are we going to do uh, with the challenge that he has presented? And so we have these uh, four challenges, these four warnings, if you will. There's two gates, two paths, verses 13 and 14, two trees, two kinds of fruit, two professions. There's talkers and doers and two builders that we will consider this morning, two foundations. In each case, Christ is calling for a life-changing commitment that recognizes him as Lord. And it builds. First, there is the reality of two ways. Then the issue is that of fruit, which tells on which way one is going. And then point blank, Christ shows the key issue is one of lordship. There are those who will profess him to be their Lord, but in truth they they don't do the will of the Father and are shown to be those who practice lawlessness. Uh, They're defined by their practice. It's not (laughs) the lordship rule of Christ. It's lawlessness. Now, they're religious, and they say the right thing. Uh, They say, Lord, Lord, but their lifestyle practice is really one of self-rule instead of being governed by Christ's lordship. Now, I noted last time that it is uncanny how Christ's warning about these religious hypocrites in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, it's uncanny how his warning about these religious hypocrites so closely mirrors much of what is aberrant in charismatic circles. Now, certainly there is application beyond this movement, and not all in the charismatic movement practice lawlessness. Still, the things Christ brings out do have a very special and and clear application to the charismatic movement generally. Uh, Note what he talks about. Prophecy, casting out demons, and, and, and signs and wonders. Christ says on Judgment Day, 
many who do these things will say, Lord, Lord, to him and seek to make their case about how in his name they prophesied, cast out demons and did many wonders, literally powers, only to hear him say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, that brings us to the fourth and final wrap up warning. And we pick it up at verse 24, Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. This, therefore, ties back to and builds on what Christ has said in the sermon. I mean, this is wrap-up material. This is conclusion. In conclusion, building on what he's already said. And Christ addresses these words to whoever hears these sayings of mine. You see, this relates to those who have heard. They know what Christ said. Now the issue is, how are they going to respond? The sayings of Christ evidently refers to the contents of the whole previous sermon, as seen in Matthew 5 through 7. And note this parallel. He's just said in in verse 21 that the one who does the will of the Father is the one who will inherit the kingdom. Not those who merely say, Lord, Lord, but the one who does the will of the Father. Now he says, uh, those uh, who hear these sayings of mine and does them is, is the wise man who builds on the rock. So no, Christ puts the doing of his sayings on the same exact level as doing the will of the Father. In both cases, the issue is linked with having a place in the kingdom as noted by the word, therefore. This clearly shows that Christ's words and God's will coincide as one and the same. And it shows us that Jesus is God in that his words carry the same authority as those of God the Father. Now, a major theme in Jesus' ministry is hearing. Hearing in the sense of appropriation. It's not enough just to hear it. Hearing assumes that you are going to respond. You know, uh, sometimes we have this happen in our home. Uh, It happens more often than I really want to admit, but I'll be doing something and Janie will be talking to me. And uh, I hear her, but she'll say to me, "Uh, did you hear what I just said? And, uh, you know, at that point, I'm really faced with a crossroads, right? I mean, what am I going to say? Am I going to try to lie my way? I did hear what you said. I have no idea what you said. (laughs) Or she'll say, are are you listening to me? And, uh, you know, sometimes it's like I can hear without hearing, right? And uh, that's the issue here. What does it really mean to hear? After giving the parable of the sower and the soils in which only the good ground yields a crop representing those who are saved, Christ then gives this challenge. He says this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Better take this in. And hearing is the idea of of not just hearing, but responding. And so he goes on to say in uh, verse 23, he received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it. Who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. So the hearing that Christ is talking about responds in a fruitful way. In the prophetic scriptures, the Messiah is one who comes with authority. And true followers are those who hear and respond with obedience. 
I like this way back in Genesis, this messianic prophecy. It's a key messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. Everybody acknowledges this, uh, where it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is the right to rule. It it runs through the tribe of of Judah. And it gets more precise as you go along. But uh, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh, And the word Shiloh, we believe, means the one to whom it belongs. In other words, the Messiah. Until Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs, comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. He will come with authority. Deuteronomy. We have this prophecy. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. And, of course, uh, in reference to Moses. And will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So he comes with the message of God uniquely so, as did Moses. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. This is the issue. He's going to speak with authority. And the issue is, how are you going to respond to that voice of authority? Hearing followed by doing are indicative of true faith. We're not saved by the doing. But we are saved by a hearing response that evidences itself in the doing. It shows in the life. Not perfectly, but certainly. Notice uh, a couple of references here. In John 3.36, a very literal translation here. Uh, ESV, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's interesting that in the Greek, uh, whoever believes relates to those who obey. And then in Hebrews 5, 9, and being made perfect, speaking of Jesus Christ, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And, of course, it begins with the obedience of faith. As I say, faith itself is a a response of obedience. God commands all men everywhere to uh, repent, to believe. We're saved by grace alone, that is, the cross, through faith alone. But the faith that saves desires to obey. The fruit of true faith is obedience. And that is Christ's major point here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know how you can get around that if you're going to take what Christ is saying seriously and literally. And I would agree with uh, what A.W. Tozer said when he said, Plain horse sense ought to tell us that anything that makes no change in the man who professes it makes no difference to God either. Amen. Christ says those who hear his sayings and do them are like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, the house represents a person's life, and what they build on it, and what they build on is the foundation. The great issue being illustrated is that which a person builds their life upon. Each house represents a life founded on a governing principle. What governs your life? What is the governing principle of your life? If it's not the Lordship of Christ, you're missing it. This is the all-important issue. The wise person builds on the rock of Christ's lordship and his sayings. The rock is the lordship of Christ. And if Christ is truly recognized as Lord, it will be demonstrated in obedience. 
doing his sayings. In the Bible, Christ is often spoken of as the rock, both prophetically in the Old Testament as well as symbolically in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 21, 42 and 44, Jesus said to them, have, have uh, you never read in the scriptures, which is kind of, uh, you know, when you're talking to people who really know the Bible well, this is kind of an interesting thing to say. Have you never read in the scriptures? And of course they had read in the scriptures. Right there in Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected, which they were rejecting him. The stone, the stone. He's the rock, remember. Uh, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And notice what he goes on to say about this stone. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Well, you got your choice. Brokenness or powder. What, what do you want? Falling on the stone represents the brokenness of repentance. That Christ called for at the outset of his ministry. And described in the Sermon on the Mount. Those not repentant will be crushed in judgment by the rock that is Christ. You know, one of the, uh, as I say, one of the uh, symbolic uh, figures that the Bible uses as far as the Messiah is stone. Back here in Daniel 2.44, uh, you watched, and of course, uh, you have this vision that, that Daniel is interpreting. Uh, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands. In other words, it's God's doing. It's, it doesn't have human fingerprints on it. It's, it's God's doing. Uh, and so this stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image uh, representing the kingdoms of this world. Struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then he goes on to say in, in verse 45, Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. The stone is going to bring the kingdoms of this world down. It's sure. Well, Christ is the rock, the stone, and the wise man has him and his sayings as the foundation for his life. Now, in the Bible, you can't separate God from his word. What you think about one, you think about the other. Faith personally recognizes the truth of God's word, submits to it, and rests upon it. And Paul says this in relationship to foundation in 1 Corinthians 3.11. For no other foundation, and that's what Christ is addressing here, the foundation of a person's life. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The only real lasting foundation that one can build on is Jesus Christ, the rock. Apart from Christ, all is vanity, and a person is really building on nothing. Nothing that will ultimately last. Ed Glasscock says, when the testing of life's foundation comes, only those who have responded properly to Christ's teaching will stand. You know, in the book of Revelation, and of course the consummation of all things in the book of Revelation, but we're in the tribulation period here, uh, you know, as far as ultimately, uh, prophetically. And in Revelation six fifteen through 17, it says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves in the rocks and the mountains. And said to the mountains and the rocks, by the way, this gives you kind of a, a, a feel for the awesomeness of the Almighty God. 
said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? There's the question. The great day of his wrath. Who is able to stand now? What's the answer to that question, you suppose? Well, maybe we should read on. Because I think we have the answer in the next chapter. Revelation chapter 7, 9 and 10. After these things, and he lists, you know, from the 12 tribes, you know, and so forth. But after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and, and tongues, standing, standing. Where are they standing? Well, before the throne and before the Lamb. What was the question? The great day of his wrath. Who can stand? Well, these are found standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then in verses 13 and 14, one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these who are radiant white robes, and from where do they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are those who come to know Christ as Savior. Who recognize the precious blood of Christ is how we have a right standing with God. The wise person builds his life upon the rock foundation that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is Lord and Savior to all those who believe in him. And then Christ said this. Verse 25. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall. Why? For it was founded on the rock. There's the ultimate issue. The storm represents the testing times culminating in the ultimate testing of judgment day before God. That which is founded on the rock endures. A true faith is characterized by obedience to Christ and is found standing in the end. Now, we all struggle, right? We all struggle. James says to believers, we all stumble in many things. And that can be a comforting verse. Yet it is also true that true faith perseveres. By the grace of God, it keeps on keeping on. Not perfectly, but we are in process. God disciplines all of his children to build holiness into our lives. A true faith consistently desires to obey God, and even in failure, down deep, wants to obey. I know that's true. You say, boy, you got such a a prodigal over here. You know, how can this be? Well, the believer has a new nature. And this new nature, being wed to the Holy Spirit, always desires to obey Christ. Yes, we still have the flesh the old sin nature. And so we do struggle. But down deep, the new man desires to obey. And that's always true. It's why we as believers cannot really thoroughly enjoy sin. You tried to do that? Don't try it. But you you can't really enjoy sin because you have the Holy Spirit living inside you, wed to to the new man, the new person, the new creation in Christ Jesus. The end result of this is the true believers have a persevering faith. 
In Colossians, which we will look at at some detail in VBS, Lord willing, Paul writes, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind, that's how it used to be, but, but, you're, but you're in your mind something different now. This is what you were. In your minds, you were enemies by wicked works. That's how it revealed itself. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith. Grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 26. In contrast, he says, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. In contrast to the wise Man who builds on the truth of Christ is the foolish person who builds his life's house on the sand. Now, by outward appearances, it may look good. In fact, it looks very similar, uh, outwardly perhaps, uh, to the wise person. But there is a foundational problem. The foolish person hears what Christ has to say. He, He knows. He's heard it. They both heard the same message, but he doesn't build on that. He may profess to high heaven, as we saw last week, but he doesn't really obey Christ. You see, he doesn't really have a heart sold out to Christ. Christ isn't really his Lord. The hypocritical professor cries, Lord, Lord, and yet lives out a pattern of disobedience. And therefore, we'll hear the Lord say, I never knew you. Depart from me. You practice lawlessness. Pretty strong theme in the New Testament, this obedience theme. Uh, We get a little queasy here sometimes as evangelicals because, uh, you know, we kind of like a lordless gospel that says, I kind of have a license to sin and it doesn't really matter. I'm secure in that. Maybe you shouldn't be. 1 John 2, 3 and 4 Now, by this, we know that we know him. How do we know that we know him? Well, one of the lines of evidence is we keep his commandments. We keep his commandments. You know why we keep his commandments? It's because of who he is to us. He who says, I know him, and there are those. I know him. Many will say, Lord, Lord, I know him. And does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. That's pretty straightforward talking. The evidence of true faith is obedience. Again, we're not talking perfection in the life, but rather direction. A true faith as a way of life desires to obey. If the pattern is one of just lawlessness, a law unto myself, I don't care what Christ said. And and, and they might not say that, but it is really the trajectory of their life. You've got to wonder, where is that person really at? Again, God is the final judge. But we want to be very sober about what Christ is saying here. A true faith wants to obey. It recognizes Christ as Lord, and that shows in the life. And he continues on in 1 John, this theme. He's strong here. Little children, let no one deceive you. And the the emphasis is there will be those who say, oh, no, that's not really true. It doesn't matter how you live. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Practice tells He who sins is of the devil. 
For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. You see what the works of the devil are? It's an unbroken pattern of sinful rebellion. But Christ came to break that pattern in the lives of his people. A.W. Tozer said, It is altogether doubtful whether any man can be saved who comes to Christ for his help, but with no intention to obey him. The person who builds his life on the sand does things his own way. Instead of building on what Christ has to say, he follows his own thinking. His theme is, I did it my way. This person may be religious, but his life is driven by self-righteous pride, as was characteristically exhibited in the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, we're making a contrast between these uh, all the way through. And I think it's reminiscent of Cain and Abel, those two brothers early in the book of Genesis. Uh, These two brothers brought an offering of worship to the Lord. It's interesting, you have this, you know, the background of the first murder is born out of, of worship, the issue of worship. Well, Abel did it God's way, bringing the prescribed lamb offering. Cain did it his way, bringing a fruit offering not prescribed by God, and then was upset because God didn't accept it. Only that which aligns with God's way is acceptable to God. Jesus said in John chapter 12, 46 through 48, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And here's the test. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There's grace given at this point. But he goes on to say, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. The sand represents Pharisaic righteousness instead of the righteousness based on faith in Christ, which is demonstrated in obedience to his word. Building on the rock foundation involves hearing and obeying Jesus. The lawless life that is self-oriented rests on a foundation which in the end proves to to be no lasting foundation at all. John MacArthur says, The sand is composed of human opinions, attitudes, and wills which are always shifting and unstable. To build on sand is to build on self-will, self-fulfillment, self-purpose, self-sufficiency, self-satisfaction, self-righteousness. I think there's a theme going there, right? To build on sand is to be unteachable, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. To build the house of one's life on the sand is to follow the ultimate deception of Satan, which is to make a person believe he is saved when he is not. Verse 27, and the rain descended and the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house and it fell and great was its fall. When the storms of testing come to the builder who hears but does not obey, the house they built will not be able to stand. That which is built on the sand shall not stand. And Jesus said, and great was its fall. It's a total loss. John Phillips says, the sayings of men are a foundation of sand on which the foolish build. The philosophies of the Eastern mystics, the dogmas of the Roman pontiffs appeal to many. Principles of Mormonism, psychology, social science, humanism, Darwinism, or Marxism appeal to others. But when the storms come, all systems of doctrine and conduct not founded on these sayings of Christ will fall. How true that is. 
What's the governing principle for our lives? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ and his authority? Or is it some other philosophy? The storms of life test the mettle of a person and reveal what they are really all about. First Peter, uh, Peter writes to the suffering saints, and he's, he writes there in First Peter chapter 1, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? Why? Why are we going through these things? Well, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the storms of life are proving times. Some abandon their faith in the midst of the storm, proving their faith was never really genuine. However, the truly genuine do persevere. But the storms of life, I think, are only a precursor to the ultimate test, storm, if you will, of God's judgment that will reveal who is really standing on the truth and who is not. What we have in this parable is a somber warning against feeling secure in self-righteousness based on religious rituals, religious legalism, such as practiced by the scribes and the Pharisees. In contrast is true repentance and faith, which has a changed heart and seeks to live in obedience to the Lordship of Christ. Well, that brings us to the concluding remarks of the chapter. Verse 28, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. When Jesus got done teaching, the people were astonished. The idea of astonished is strong. It's that of sheer amazement, a state of awe, of being overwhelmed. Why were they so uh, astonished, do you suppose, as we have studied this together? Let me suggest a couple of reasons why they were astonished. You see, the Jews believed as Jews, they had a ticket into the kingdom. There was no question about Jews going into the kingdom. Who's not going to the kingdom? Those filthy Gentiles, you know, people like you by background, right? You know, that, that's where they were coming from. They felt as Jews, they were secure in their salvation. They had a place in the kingdom. So for Christ to now talk in terms of salvation, in terms of many who say these things, but yet they're not going in, this is astonishing. And then Christ had the audacity to attach recognition of him as Lord to those who enter the kingdom. He had the audacity to say, I'm the one who decides. And I will say, I never knew you. Depart. You're not going in. Who, who says these things? Nobody talks like this. None of the rabbis ever talk like this. It's astonishing the things he was saying. The word teaching can refer either to content or manner. And evidently both are in view here. After reviewing the content of Christ's teaching, verse 28 says the people were astonished. But then verse 29 goes on to address the manner of Christ's teaching, saying that he taught as one having authority. Now it's pointed out that while they were astonished, it says nothing about a heart commitment. Yeah, it blew their minds, the things he was saying. However, Jesus calls for allegiance to his lordship. And not just amazement, 
as the whole surrounding context shows. Now, if God showed up in person, you know, let's just imagine Pastor Dwight is not in the pulpit this morning, but we have God showing up to teach this morning. What would that look like? Hopefully we'd have a few more people. (laughs) It would look like Jesus. He was God come in the flesh and his manner of teaching and content blew the minds of the people in effect. Note here in John 7, 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. So all the talk is about Jesus. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Sent a little delegation over. Go bring him in. This is getting out of hand. And uh, so here's how it went down. Jump down to verse uh, 45, 46. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who, who said to them, why have you not brought him? We sent you to go get him. Where is he? Why didn't you bring him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. (laughs) What an answer. Nobody ever spoke like this man. We have a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a rod from the, the stem of Jesse... And a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. So we have this prophecy. He was going to be very special in relationship to his wisdom, his understanding, his counsel, his knowledge. And when Jesus began his uh, ministry, uh, one of the places he went was back home to Nazareth. And he went into the synagogue, they gave him the scroll, and he opened up to Isaiah chapter 61, and he began to read this in first person, like it applied to him. And then he said to them, it says, verse 21, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him, and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? How in the world does he think he's the fulfillment of this? We know him. Didn't he work, uh, do some work for you? (laughs) I mean, he lived just down the street. We know that family. The wisdom and power of Jesus' words were amazing. You know, Jesus never lost an argument. Have you studied the Gospels? He never lost an argument. When Jesus asked the questions, it left his critics just sitting there in silence. You know, Jesus never had to say, like I often have to say, I don't know, I'll get back to you on that. Jesus was never at a loss for words, and he never said something really stupid, like I often tend to do. Sometimes I kind of amaze myself in a bad way. Where I will uh, say something without really thinking about it enough. And it's like, oh my goodness, what did I just say? It happens. I know probably not to you, but it happens to me. Jesus always knew what to say. And it was always stunningly profound. No exceptions. Who lives like that? Nobody except Jesus. 
We marvel at his supernatural miracles, and rightly so. And we'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. But just as astounding, I want to impress upon you, just as astounding was his teaching. It too is one of the great proofs that he is the Messiah. No one ever taught like Jesus either before or after. The spirit of wisdom and understanding was upon him in an unparalleled way. And it goes on to say in verse 29, For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Here's the standout thing. Jesus taught as one having authority in contrast to the scribes. Now, you understand the scribes were the scholars of the day. I mean, they were the ones that had, you know, doctor behind their name. I mean, they were esteemed teachers. If anybody knew the the scriptures, it was the scribes. Gotquestions.org says, Scribes in ancient Israel were learned men whose business was to study the law, transcribe it, and write commentaries on it. They were also hired on occasions when the need for a written document arose or when an interpretation of a legal point was needed. The scribes took their job of preserving scripture very seriously. They would copy and recopy the Bible meticulously, even counting letters and spaces to ensure each copy was correct. They were fanatical about that, which is really great. It goes on to say here, we can thank the Jewish scribes for preserving the Old Testament portion of our Bibles. And that's true. We compare manuscripts that are a thousand years apart and they're essentially identical. They were so meticulous in the work that they did. Most of the influential scribes were laymen and were members of the Pharisaic party. Not all Pharisees were scribes, but most of the scribes were Pharisees. And for this reason, the scribes and the Pharisees are often linked together. So they were the conservatives, the the theological conservatives. But here was the problem with the scribes. They also considered themselves to be the guardians of the so-called oral law. Supposedly, God not only gave the, the written word to Moses, but also the oral word. And that is where they really got into serious trouble. In addition to the written law, they also added all kinds of legalistic man-made teachings called the oral law. And who can fight against the oral law? Because it's oral after all, right? Yeah, so we can't go back and say, well, it's, yeah, the written law says this, but the oral law, that too is authoritative and it's been passed down and we've got some records of it here. That's where that went. Well, in contrast, Christ brought the people back to the intent of the law and presented a higher spiritual standard, which can only be fulfilled in relationship to him. For example, Christ taught it is not enough to refrain from physical adultery. I mean, they knew that from the law. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But Christ took it a step further, saying one must not even look on a woman to lust after her, because to do so is to commit adultery in the heart. You see, while the scribes emphasized outward legalism, in contrast, Christ emphasized having a right heart. He went deeper. The scribes were scholars. And you know what scholars do? They're always quoting some authority or another. I remember when I was in Bible college, we had a professor, and it really stuck with me. I was a young man, you know, early 20s. <clears throat> mid-twenties. And uh, 
I remember him saying, now remember, young men, as you get into the ministry, you're going to have to quote other scholars if people are going to respect what you're saying. Well, there's a certain amount of wisdom in that. Yes, a young person just learning should appeal to those with more knowledge. But this is the point. Jesus didn't need to do that. As someone said, he didn't need to quote anyone because he was the original word. Yeah. He's the ultimate communication. He's the word. The message from God is packaged in Jesus. In contrast, the scribes are called, quote, walking footnotes who derive their authority by citing other famous rabbis. I like that. Walking footnotes. That's kind of what uh, teachers are. I don't care how good they are. They tend to be walking footnotes. (laughs) So-and-so said this, so-and-so said that, and -and so-and-so said this. Okay. Jesus, but I say. What? There's a major difference. The introduction of the idea of authority becomes a major theme in Matthew. Christ's authority in teaching in Matthew 5 through 7 segues to his authority as seen in his miracle working ministry as seen in Matthew 8 through 10. And this emphasis on authority, you understand this as you study the, the Gospels. This emphasis on authority became a major point of contention as the religious leaders felt threatened by Jesus. They had a real problem with his lack of credentials. He hasn't had the schooling. Where did he get this stuff? You can't just come out of nowhere and and make yourself a a self-proclaimed authority. They had a problem with that. Never mind that he had all the God-ordained messianic credentials outlined in the prophetic scriptures. That aside. By the way, this is why they constantly challenge Jesus. It explains the tension over the traditions. Jesus challenged their traditions, went back to what the word actually says. What are you saying that our oral law in these traditions is not not accurate? We're offended by that. It explains their demand for signs. Show us a sign from heaven. And they're challenging questions regarding authority. In effect, these religious leaders were constantly saying to Jesus, Who do you think you are? In Matthew 21, context, Jesus had just uh, cleansed the temple, you know, threw out the money changers, (laughs) ran them all out of the temple. It's like amazing. And so here they come. Matthew 21, 23. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him. Very self-righteously so. They confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are doing this stuff on our turf? This is the temple. This is why when Jesus said things like, You have heard, you have heard all that these scribes are teaching. You have heard, but I tell you. Six times in Matthew 5, we have that formula. This voice of authority was met with hostility from these religious leaders. They got the point. 
He's teaching differently. He's teaching first person authoritatively. We don't do that. In each case, Christ explained that what they had been taught about the mere external emphasis of the law is to have a deeper corresponding internal reality. Jesus made it a heart issue. The theme of Christ's Sermon on the Mount is a message about righteous living that is born out of true repentance. Christ emphasized that his teaching must be received with the obedience of repentance in view of who he is as the Messiah King. You see, his entire message is not merely ethical, but, are you ready for this? Messianic. It's grounded not merely in doing this or that, but in who he is. He was not merely a prophet, but claimed to be Lord. He determines who enters the kingdom. Why should we adhere to Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount? Why should we put it into practice? Because of its striking illustrations? Because of the beauty of its style? Because of the power of its moral content? No. No. As followers of Christ, we practice it because beyond its ethical, moral, and spiritual teaching is the person of the preacher himself. Recognizing Jesus as Lord and Savior means we seek to do what he says. His word carries some weight with us. In repentance, he calls us to align with himself. Above all, this message is about the authority of Christ. That's where this long sermon, the greatest sermon ever given, ends. It ends with the authority of Jesus Christ. As Lord, Christ speaks with authority. You say, well, he, he doesn't speak to authority with me. That's because you're not saved. Because if you were saved, he would speak with authority. Not, you know, you can disobey a master. You can be a disobedient child. That's why you get spanked. That's why I get spanked. But as Lord, Christ speaks with authority and true faith responds with obedience. That is the bottom line issue here. That is the conclusion of the whole matter, as emphasized by Christ here at the end of the greatest sermon ever given. May we build our lives accordingly. Josh McDowell wrote this. Many people entertain the idea that Christianity, like almost any other religion, is basically a system of beliefs. You know, a set of doctrines or a code of Behavior, a philosophy, an ideology. But that's a myth. That's a myth. Christianity is not at all like Buddhism or Islam or Confucianism. The founders of those religions said, in effect, here is what I teach. Believe my teachings. Follow my philosophy. In contrast, Jesus said, follow me, follow me. Leaders of the world's religion said, what do you think about what I teach? Jesus said, who do you say I am? It's the person behind the teaching that makes all the difference in Christianity. He speaks with authority to us who are true believers. 
We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that changes us from the inside out. That's what Jesus is talking about. So let me ask you, who is Jesus to you? Is he truly your Lord? Is he your Savior? As Savior, he died for all of our sins. As Lord God over all, he arose again the third day. And both are a part of the gospel story. What he did on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, which declares him to be the Son of God. Are you building your life upon him as your Savior and Lord? This is the ultimate issue for time and all eternity. Believe on, not merely about, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and you will be saved. Let's have our concluding song and then I'll close this in prayer.